Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 16 of They Walk Among Us, a podcast dedicated to UK true crime. Listener caution is advised as this episode contains adult themes and descriptions that some listeners may find distressing. A dangerous prisoner escapes from custody. The events that unfolded are what worse nightmares are made of. As a taxi manoeuvred through the ice and snow, it was January 12, 1977, during the most bitter winter England had seen for 20 years. The passengers got in at Leicester Prison, their destination Chesterfield Magistrates Court. Two prison wardens, Donald Sprintle and Ken Simmons, accompanied a prisoner, William Hughes, who liked to be called Billy, but was often referred to as Mad Billy. Donald sat in the passenger seat while Ken was handcuffed to Billy in the back. This was Billy's tenth remand hearing. The trip from the prison to the court in a taxi was a regular one since Billy hadn't been categorised as a Category A prisoner. To be labelled this, you would need to be considered highly dangerous to the public. At the time, transit in a taxi was cheaper than using official police transportation, and it was standard for driver Dave Reynolds. Billy Hughes was attending court on that day to face charges of rape and actual bodily harm. It followed a young couple around the back of some swimming baths. He spied on them while they had sex. He then attacked the young man by stabbing him in the face. While her boyfriend was incapacitated, Billy raped the young woman at knife point. This wasn't his first violent offence. He had been attending court since he was 14 
and he had been in and out of prison throughout his adult life. He was 30 years old and his crimes were becoming more serious. Before the rape, his criminal history was varied and extensive. He started young, breaking into homes and stealing motorbikes. This escalated to more violent crimes like attacking police officers with his fists and alarmingly killing two police dogs with his bare hands. Now he was on his way to court, facing his most severe charges yet. As the taxi reached Trowel Service Station, Billy said he was desperate for a toilet break. The taxi pulled over, and without incident, he was escorted to the toilets. Once they were back in the car, Billy produced a knife. He lunged at Donald Sprintle and stabbed him in the back of the neck. Donald screamed at the taxi driver to keep going, but Billy then turned on Ken Simmons, stabbing the prison warden before reaching for a set of keys to undo his handcuffs. Held hostage at knife point, the three men were forced out of the car seven miles later near the A632, a major road that connects the Peak District to the Dukeries via Chesterfield. The taxi driver Dave Reynolds later said of the incident, I was told that if I did what was ordered, I would be alright. I drove for about 20 minutes before he told me to stop, then he ordered us out and abandoned us. Those 20 minutes seemed like hours. I don't think I will ever be that terrified again. The three men were alone in the storm, with both wardens bleeding heavily. By the time they waved down a passing truck, Billy had sped off down the B5057, a rural road in Derbyshire. The man in the truck had a pair of bolt cutters in the vehicle and was able to separate Ken and Donald, who had been handcuffed together, before he drove into town to get help and raise the alarm. Later, Donald Sprintle spoke about the security procedures when travelling with a prisoner. When asked why a dangerous prisoner was escorted in a taxi, he replied, Well, we had no reason to suspect that he was dangerous. As far as we knew, he was just a normal uh, weekly remand prisoner to be handed over to the police for the magistrate's court. It's the only thing we knew, that he was on a charge of rape. Well, if we'd known that he was of a violent nature, he would have been searched more thoroughly, he would have been given a strip search, and uh, the powers that be would probably have decided he would go under a security escort. We took the normal precautions for a, a prisoner of the type that we knew him to be, you know, which was virtually nothing. He was given a normal rub-down search in reception prior to leaving the prison. Nothing was found on him. Everything was all right on the journey to Chesterfield. You know, there's a little bit of conversation about motor cars and fishing and things like this. And uh, as we took the slip road off the uh, M1, the A617 to Chesterfield, I felt this violent blow in the back of my neck. My immediate thoughts were that uh, we'd been hit by a lorry or something from behind. But uh, I put my hand up to the back of my neck like this and I just felt a load of flesh and blood. I didn't realise then that I had been stabbed. It turned out Billy Hughes had stolen a knife from the prison kitchen over a month before the escape on December 4th. He'd been working in the kitchen and at the end of his shift, a guard counted the knives, finding one to be missing. The guard informed his superior a basic search was carried out, but the knife wasn't found. A couple of low-ranking officials requested a full search, but their supervisor refused due to the upheaval it would create to comb through each cell thoroughly. The supervisor felt there wasn't enough staff to facilitate it. 
For the guards who knew about the missing knife, they were on edge, waiting for an attack on an inmate or a member of prison staff. After a month, they had nearly forgot about the incident, and it was business as usual. The knife appeared again on January 12th, when after a pat-down that identified nothing, two wardens got in a taxi with Billy Hughes to take him to his remand hearing, and he managed to escape. Billy Hughes continued down the road in the bloodied taxi at a frantic pace. He travelled only a few miles in the blizzard on the B5057 near Beeley before he crashed the vehicle into a wall. He escaped the crash unscathed, but the car wouldn't start. Billy weighed up his options. If he walked along the road, he was bound to get picked up by the police quickly as it was only a matter of time before the prison wardens and the taxi driver got help. Due to the weather conditions, the roads were practically empty, so he had two other options. On one side of him was the rolling farmer's fields of the Peak District, on the other was Beeley Moor. Later police would assume Billy made his way across the farmer's fields, as it was an easier route. Instead, Billy started jogging across the uneven landscape of the frosty moor, dressed only in the thin layers of his smart court clothing. Passing empty outhouses and barns, he kept running in the fog and bitter cold for almost three hours. Pottery Cottage in Eastmoor was likely the first home he saw. It was a large property, with the former 18th century pottery renovated into three homes. At one end lived school teachers Len and Joy Newman. The middle property was empty. The last home belonged to Jill and Richard Moran, who lived in the cottage with their 10-year-old daughter Sarah and Jill's elderly parents, Arthur and Amy Minton. They were a close family. Arthur was a retired grocer who used the money he obtained from selling his business to help Jill and Richard buy the cottage. Richard and Jill adopted their daughter Sarah as a baby. By all accounts, they were a quiet, loving family. It was like any other normal day. Amy was busy in the kitchen while Arthur read the paper. They were unaware a convict had escaped and was stalking their house. The warming lights let Billy know that someone was home. He marched towards the house, dropping the knife he had used to stab the prison wardens. As he approached, he saw a stockpile of firewood. Next to the wood, two axes were discarded. He took the opportunity to arm himself grabbing an axe in each hand. He went to observe the occupants of Pottery Cottage through the window. He could see Amy preparing vegetables and he decided to enter the home. He silently let himself in the unlocked back door. Amy was only alerted to the intruder when she turned around and saw the man standing still with two axes. She froze and Billy spoke. The police are after me, but don't worry, I won't harm you. He made both Arthur and Amy lead the way and give him a tour of the house. He wanted the layout of the building before the other family members returned home. After they had shown him around, the three returned to the kitchen. Billy cast aside the axes and searched in drawers, picking out a sharp five-inch boning knife. The three sat quietly waiting for the next family member to come home. They didn't have to wait long, as before three o'clock... Arthur and Amy's 38-year-old daughter Jill arrived from her job as a secretary. 
Jill was about to put the key in the lock when her mother opened the door and immediately blurted out, There's a man in here on the run from the police. He's got a knife, but he promised not to harm us. Caught totally off guard, and with her parents inside, Jill stepped into the house. That's when she saw Billy Hughes. Jill must have seemed more of a threat than her pensioner parents, as Billy lowered his voice, and in between gritted teeth he told her, I've stabbed two prison officers. I did not kill them, but I do know how to kill. Just half an hour later, Sarah came home after being dropped off by the school bus. Her mother didn't want to alarm her daughter, so she told the ten-year-old that their guest was a motorist whose car had broken down. He was just staying with them while he waited for the vehicle recovery service to come and get him. Jin instructed her daughter to go and play in her room. Thankfully, Sarah complied and stayed there. 36-year-old Richard Moran was the last of the family to return home from work. When he entered the front room, he was confronted with the sight of a stranger holding a knife to his wife's throat. Richard followed the lead of his family and remained calm, hoping their compliance would ensure their abductor would leave when he got what he wanted. Billy Hughes realised he had more than he could handle with four adult hostages and a child. He decided to tie up the family using a washing line, a hoover lead and flex from a lamp. He bound their feet together and tied their hands behind their backs. At this point, Arthur started to resist, shouting and pleading to leave his family alone. The 72-year-old's sudden outburst angered Billy. He scuffled with the pensioner and threw him to the floor. Arthur had an artificial leg which had become detached in the struggle. When Billy realised, he moved the leg away so Arthur was unable to get up off the floor. Not satisfied with just binding their hands and feet, Billy gagged all five members of the family. Even though he stood just five foot six, Billy had spent the majority of his adult life in prison where he lifted weights. He made light work of lifting his hostages, placing them in different rooms of the house. Jill Moran was taken to the bedroom she shared with her husband, while 12 stone Richard was thrown over Billy Hughes's shoulder and taken to the guest room. Between the two rooms was Sarah's bedroom and this is where Amy Minton was held. Arthur Minton was moved off the living room floor and tied to an armchair. Sarah Moran was taken to a grandparent's bedroom at the end of the house, situated next to the room where her father Richard was being kept. While Sarah was being taken to a grandparent's room, Amy Minton wriggled free from her ties. Determined to escape and raise the alarm, she stood up ready to go. At that moment, Billy Hughes came into the room and discovered Amy had freed herself. Enraged, he bound her again so forcefully, pulling the wire so tight the 70-year-old screamed in pain. He gagged her to prevent her cries. Agitated and angry after Amy's near escape and Arthur's defiance, Billy Hughes stormed downstairs to the living room. Arthur was fastened to a chair where Billy Hughes had left him. He was untied and Billy forced him to the ground. In an act of cowardice, Billy stabbed the pensioner to death, coldly returning him to the armchair and draping a coat over his lifeless body. The evening passed at Pottery Cottage and the family remained separated in different rooms of the house, unaware of the events that had just unfolded. police searched the moors and fields looking in disused buildings and outhouses. They believed Billy Hughes could be heading for Blackpool to kill his wife, Jean. Some of Billy's fellow inmates suggested that he bore a grudge against her since their separation. 
It didn't occur to authorities that Billy Hughes had sought refuge in the first occupied house he had found. A local paper featured the headline, Dangerous Hijackers Still Free Despite Moorland Hunt. It then listed three theories of what happened to the convict since his escape. The first theory was eerily similar to the truth and read, Theory 1 is that the 30-year-old man is holding a family hostage in an isolated farmhouse on the moors. Theory 2 was Billy Hughes had died of exposure on the moor and the third was that he had left the county boundaries and travelled to Blackpool. Blackpool police took precaution in moving Jean and her two children to a safe house. One of Jean's children, Nicola, was fathered by Billy and was four years old. Her father had been in prison most of her short life but Billy had hand-drawn Walt Disney characters and made intricate models out of matchsticks to send to his daughter while he was incarcerated. The little girl loved her father. She was probably too young to remember life with Billy, but her mother Jean would later say, he was very violent to me and the children, but on the other hand, he had some pleasant ways about him at times. The couple met in 1972 when Billy was released from prison. Not long after, he was arrested again when drugs were found in the boot of his car. He resisted arrest and became so violent he sent two police officers to hospital. He destroyed the back of the police car as best he could and then focused his rage on his cell, wrecking the toilet and then headbutting a police officer. Billy Hughes was sentenced to three and a half years in prison and proposed to Jean when she visited him. The couple married after his release. The next time he would be detained would be on the charge of rape and actual bodily harm, after which he would escape. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. In the morning at Pottery Cottage, there was a knock at the door. Billy went to retrieve Jill from the master bedroom to answer it. The visitor was a man coming to clear the septic tank in the cottage. Not daring to alert the guest, Jill acted as if everything was normal. The visitor completed his work and Jill signed his worksheet. The man left and as Jill closed the door, through an adjoining doorway she saw her father sitting motionless in his armchair. Billy was quick to reassure her that her father was just sleeping and he had kindly covered him with a coat to keep him warm. He then told Jill to call in sick at work and inform her daughter's school that Sarah would not be coming in today. So confident in his power over his hostage, he told Jill to drive to Chesterfield to buy cigarettes and a newspaper. He said, I know you won't do anything silly because I've got your family here. Jill complied. After she left, Billy Hughes took the opportunity to move Arthur's body to the annex, where the pensioner had lived with his wife. He then covered the blood-stained armchair with a tablecloth. Billy then made his way to Arthur and Amy's bedroom, where ten-year-old Sarah was being held. He went to the room with a purpose, and that was to murder a child. Jill Moran returned to Pottery Cottage with cigarettes and a newspaper and wanted to see her daughter. She was told by Billy Hughes that her daughter was fine, but she wasn't allowed to see Sarah. From his wallet, Billy then produced a photograph of his daughter Nicola and reassured Jill that as he had a child of his own, he certainly wouldn't hurt hers. After their conversation, Richard was carried downstairs by Billy, was instructed to call his work and tell them he was unwell. Billy then untied Richard and brought Amy downstairs, releasing her from the fleck she had tightly wound around her wrists and ankles. Jill was instructed to make everyone soup and toast, and Billy even took a portion to Sarah and Arthur to try and keep up the masquerade they were still alive. Richard, Jill and Amy did as they were told under the watchful eye of Billy Hughes. Their captor found out around this time the 70-year-old Amy would usually be cleaning the home of neighbours Len and Joy Newman who lived at the end of Pottery Cottage. Wanting not to draw any attention to the situation, Billy sent Amy to continue with her usual routine. She cleaned the house while the owners were out. She joined Jill and Richard and they passed the time by playing cards and reading the newspapers. Billy spotted Richard's Chrysler 180 in the driveway and hatched a plan to take Jill hostage and travel to a friend's in Sutton and Ashfield who owed him a share in a robbery they committed some years before. He told Jill and Richard to go with him for a test drive and the three briefly left in the snow. Upon returning to the cottage, Billy found a small suitcase and filled it with Jill's clothes and a wig he'd retrieved from her dressing table. His explanation was he was going to use them as a disguise, though when he left the house with Jill after tying up Richard and Amy that night, he was still dressed in his own clothes. 
Jill was bundled into the car. She must have been petrified on the near 20-mile drive in the darkened snow from Beeley to Sutton in Ashfield. The car finally came to a stop in the parking lot of Roy's Café. Billy said he was going inside to meet someone and Jill should sit tight. He removed the keys from the ignition and went inside, though he didn't go via the front entrance. He went through a door used by kitchen staff. A few minutes elapsed before Billy returned to the Chrysler. He reeled off a tale about bumping into a policeman and knocking him out before stealing the officer's truncheon. Billy opened his coat to show Jill the stolen weapon, but this story was later proven to be fabricated. Billy had entered the cafe via the back entrance and saw the truncheon under the counter. Maybe it was kept there by staff in case he got rowdy. Billy stole it before going back to the car. It was believed he didn't meet anyone in the cafe. The pair drove to Pottery Cottage, arriving at 2am, and Jill pleaded with Billy to see her daughter. If Jill, Amy and Richard had found out that Billy Hughes had murdered Sarah and Arthur, maybe they wouldn't be so compliant. Billy explained to Jill that she could see her daughter tomorrow, but for tonight he insisted that all three of his hostages sleep in the same room so he could keep a proper eye on them. On the morning of January 14th, the hostages had been captive for two days and had hardly slept or ate throughout their ordeal. Jill was told to make tea and toast for everyone, and once again Billy kept up the charade and took breakfast to the hidden bodies of Sarah and her grandfather. Billy had another errand for Jill. He wanted her to go into Chesterfield again and gather a list of supplies for his escape. His list included a gas stove for camping, cigarettes, tins of soup and stew, lamb and steak chops and sweets. He handed Jill £25 and said buy something nice for Sarah while you were there. Brazen as ever this time, Billy told Richard to go with his wife. The couple went to leave in the car, but the snowfall had been so heavy all night the vehicle was unable to move. Billy Hughes wasted no time in getting a shovel and shifting the snow from the driveway. Jill and Richard were alone for the first time since their nightmare began. Their desire to tell the police was overridden by the fear of what would happen to their family if they did. They decided following their abductor's instructions would be the safest course of action. After all, they were collecting supplies and he would be gone soon. Car was filled with petrol, everything on the shopping list was purchased and they even picked out an Enid Blyton book for Sarah. When they stood in line to pay for their shopping, they saw a local paper with the words wanted in bold print and underneath a black and white picture of the man that was holding them hostage. Appeals for information regarding the whereabouts of Billy Hughes was being streamed on TVs across the country. Derbyshire's head of CID, Alfred Horobin, addressed the public. Undoubtedly a, a very violent man. Uh, in essence, any man who will produce a knife uh, in the confined spaces of a motor car, stab one man in the back of the neck most severely, uh, and then turn to the man sitting next to him, uh, and in cold blood, stab that man too, undoubtedly is a very violent man, a man who's got to be caught very quickly. He was asked how the public could aid in the capture of Billy Hughes. In essence, we're, we're asking the public um, to report any sightings of Hughes whatsoever. Um, the one thing that we 
don't want the public to do is to have a go at this man. So far as we're concerned, he's still armed with this knife, um, the knife he used to attack the warders with, and the last thing that we want is for any member of the public uh, to be injured whilst having a go. The head of Derbyshire CID was then questioned about where Billy Hughes got the knife from in the first place. That remains to be found out yet. One can speculate as to how the man came by the knife, um, but really I'm not competent to speak about the, um, the prison side of it. That is down to them. Jill and Richard arrived home and Jill began preparing a dinner of meat and vegetables, though when it was ready the only person that would eat it was Billy. Immediately after he wolfed down the meal, Billy stated he needed money. He looked at Richard and had previously discovered he held the high position of a director and would have access to funds as wages were often paid in cash at the time. Richard confirmed he could retrieve some money, now Billy Hughes wanted to get it. The second outing to Chesterfield that day had begun at 6pm. This time they were headed to Richard's workplace at Brent Plastics and Jill and Richard were accompanied by their abductor. Richard was sent in alone at first. Most of the people working the day shift had gone home and now the evening shift was in full swing. He bumped into a colleague and explained that he had come in to catch up with some work. Richard then brought his wife and Billy into the office. Richard and Jill were told to sit on the floor while Billy ransacked the room. In a drawer he found a petty cash tin and a couple of wage packets, pocketing around £250, after which the three drove back to the Moran's home. Richard was again tied up and Billy Hughes loaded the Chrysler with the supplies he had made the couple collect earlier. This was it. Was he leaving? Billy planned on leaving but would be taking Jill with him. She was pushed back into the car and Billy drove off. But only two miles into the journey, he changed his mind and the pair headed back to Pottery Cottage. Billy claimed he wanted to change his clothes and wear one of Richard's work suits. He had also apparently forgotten a map and needed it to escape. As they pulled back into the driveway, he told Jill to stay in the car. He went inside the property and climbed the stairs heading to the room where Amy and Richard were tied up. Billy opened the door just as Amy had managed to untie her binds for the second time. He lunged at her with the boning knife and in one motion cut her throat. Richard Moran was witness to the horrific scene. With hands and legs bound, he managed to get to the hallway before Billy attacked him with the knife. Unarmed and tied up, Richard didn't stand a chance against the frenzied killer. His wounds were fatal. Billy Hughes gained his composure almost immediately after the attacks. He knew he needed time to change out of his blood-stained clothes and he wanted to keep up the charade with Jill. He opened the bedroom window. The car was sat outside with the engine still running as he called to Jill. Unable to hear what was being said, she turned the engine off. Billy shouted down to her, I'm just going to check on Sarah and your dad. After a few minutes, he returned to the car and was ready to leave but it wouldn't start. The battery had died due to a faulty alternator. Billy was enraged. His escape plan had fallen apart. There were four dead bodies inside the house and there was no vehicle to escape in. Police officers were still in the area and had even been in a pub around 500 yards away the day before. 
Billy growled at Jill to go and ask for help from Joe and Len Newman, who occupied one of the homes at the end of Pottery Cottage. Jill refused at first, as she feared her friends would also be held captive, but she finally relented. She could see Billy was apoplectic, and it could be dangerous if she refused, so headed to her neighbours. Jill knocked the door, and Len finally answered. She asked if he could help jumpstart the car. Len could tell there was something wrong. Jill was pale and looked shaken up. Where's Richard, Jill? She replied. He's tied up. Despite the press coverage, the Newmans hadn't heard about the escaped convict Billy Hughes. Len stared at Jill for a second, but before he could speak, he heard another voice coming from the direction of the Moran's home. It was faint and broken. Len, for God's sake, help us. Amy Minton was still alive. The 70-year-old had used all of her strength to make it to the window Billy had opened earlier. She was leaning out, trying to escape. Billy Hughes was occupied, still frantically trying to rev the car, willing it to work. Jill panicked and returned to the Chrysler and sat in the passenger seat. There was a knock on the closed window on the opposite side of the car. Amy Minton had used her dying moments to warn her daughter. She had fallen from the window after trying to climb out. She continued to crawl through the snow until she reached the car, then amazingly pulled herself up to briefly lock eyes with her killer until her body could take no more. She took a last breath and crumpled to the floor. The sound of a revving engine and tyres spinning in the ice penetrated the silence. The Chrysler was motionless. The noise came from the other end of Pottery Cottage. Len Newman had bore witness to the scene being played out in the Moran's driveway. As the Newmans didn't own a home phone line, jumped in his car in an attempt to get help. Frantically, Billy pulled Jill from the car. He planned to make a run for it with Jill as his hostage. Walking along the road, Billy stopped at a house belonging to Ron and Madge Frost. Ron was a mechanic, so Billy thought that's just who he needed to make his escape. Billy knocked on the door, and when both Ron and Madge answered, Billy Hughes asked for a tow. While he did so, Jill mouthed the words to Madge, Help me. Madge stayed behind as her husband, Billy and Jill made their way back to the car at Pottery Cottage. Madge called the police, but Ron was oblivious to the fact that the man with his neighbour was a wanted criminal. Ron managed to start the car without seeing the body of Amy Minton in the snow. The tyres of the Chrysler screeched as the car left the driveway with Billy Hughes and Jill Moran inside. Madge Frost wasn't the only one to contact the police as the Newmans had also alerted the authorities. By this time it was ten past eight. It was dark and driving conditions in the ice and snow was dangerous. The first two responding officers arrived at Pottery Cottage at 9pm. As they pulled into the driveway, they were confronted with the sight of Amy Minton lying in the garden. The other three family members, Arthur, Sarah and Richard, were discovered in the house and moved from where they were slain. The speeding car had been spotted heading towards the A619. An unmarked police car trailed the Chrysler, which was being driven erratically. In a bold move, the police car tailing Billy advanced from the back of the Chrysler to the front, 
making him yank the steering wheel in an attempt to avoid the collision, but he instead drove into a wall. As the two officers pulled over and ran towards the car, they realised Billy had gripped Jill firmly with one hand and brandished an axe above her head with the other. He shouted, back off, or I'll kill her. He wanted the unmarked police car as his escape vehicle, and with Jill as his hostage, officers saw no other way but to comply with the murderer's demands. He bundled his petrified hostage into the Morris Marina and headed towards Cheshire. The area was swarming with police and marksmen were at the ready. It seemed unlikely Billy could escape this time. Near Raynau, Cheshire police commandeered a bus and parked it across the road the unmarked police car was travelling on. By 10pm they could see the hijacked vehicle screeching into view. Billy tried to swerve around the parked bus, but for the third time since his escape, he crashed into a wall. Police, some armed with guns, circled the car. Billy held the axe above Jill's head. The police held their position, not wanting to provoke the fugitive. Chief Inspector Peter House of the Derbyshire Police tried to calm Billy down, but after 50 minutes of negotiations, Billy snapped when a security light on a nearby house was switched on. He turned to Jill and shouted, Right, your fucking time is up. Billy brought the axe down to her head. The chief inspector tried to stop him by jumping through the window of the car and the axe grazed Jill's forehead. A firearms officer shot through the back window of the car. The bullet hit Billy in the back of the head, but it didn't penetrate his skull. It just served to make him more angry. After two more shots, PC Alan Nichols moved to the driver's side window and fired once more. Billy Hughes was hit in the shoulder and the bullet travelled to his heart and ended his life. So where are we now? Many questions arose regarding the escape of William Hughes and even more were raised when he failed to be captured. An inquiry was launched. A 57-page report was released on March 10th, 1977. Gordon Fowler, Chief Inspector of the Prison Service, completed the report, which highlighted a concerning lack of communication between police and the prison service. It cited failures in both the management and staff at Leicester Prison. It stated more vigour should have been used when searching for the knife that Billy Hughes had stolen. It went on to say, standard searching procedures were not undertaken by staff, nor were there any records of searches made. The report also found that information passed to the prison service from the police was insufficient. The prison was not made aware of Billy's four other prior violent convictions, two of which were attacks against police, nor were they made aware that a psychiatrist described him as an explosive psychopath. They were informed he was in prison for a vicious stabbing and rape at knife point. Despite this, he was categorised as a low escape risk. After the inquiry, more stringent procedures were put in place, ensuring better communication between authorities and the method of transport for prisoners was reassessed. The actions of William Hughes had a pebble-in-the-lake effect, reaching everyone he knew. His brother David said he went into hiding and begged his mother and sister to do the same. As Billy had been shot in the standoff with police, reporters asked David why he thought his brother did it. He seemed to gloss over Billy's crimes when he spoke to the press, but said, 
Billy was terrified of facing a long prison sentence. He knew he would go away for a long time. The police had always tried to put him away for a long stretch. The breakup with his girlfriend and the rape case would have been on his mind. I think he must have had a mental breakdown. In one way, he took the easy way out. His marriage had broken up, but if his wife wanted it to work, she should not have married him when he was just released from prison. She knew what he was like. He had been in and out of jail. William Hughes's ex-girlfriend, Teresa O'Doherty, spoke to a reporter about her relationship with Billy. Very, he was kind of shy guy, you know, when I met him. Uh, Well-spoken, never raised his voice or anything, you know, even when they was working outdoors, I never heard him shout about anything, you know. Not aggressive or anything in any way when I met him. You could always tell when he was going to get angry. He had this kind of look in his eyes, you know. And if I got annoyed with him or anything, then I knew when to shut up. I would just turn around. He wouldn't uh, raise his voice or anything. I'd just turn around and look at his eyes and I could tell. She was asked if he had attempted to contact her while he was on the run. Oh, no. No, I expected him doing so. Definitely. And I think that maybe, well, I know. I was the person who was after she was asked if she was frightened when she found out Billy had escaped. Well, he, he always turned around and said, you know, if I ever left him or anything, he would only go after one person, that would be me, you know. He says, there'd be no getting away from me. He says, no matter where you go, I said, I would find out where you went. Teresa O'Doherty went on to talk about her life in Chesterfield and how she is being treated by her neighbours. That's another story. I'd say malicious gossip, definitely, from two or three people which I've heard of. Um, people that's turned around and said that I've had £35,000 out of papers, televisions and everything. There's only thing they don't know. I haven't had a penny. Yes, I was offered money. I was offered it in the thousands. But same as I told the people that offered me that, this money. If anyone needs that, it's Mrs Moran, not me. I can manage on my own money. I don't need no one else's money. And I don't need blood money. She then went on to talk about Jill Moran. I can't express myself for Mrs Moran. I don't know how to. I think... I don't know. It's just very hard to explain. All I can say, I just wish to God it had been me and not that family. And I really mean that. Billy Hughes created as much discord in death as he did in life. He was still legally married to Jean when he died, therefore she was responsible for his funeral. As a practicing Catholic, she wanted the service to be held at St Cuthbert's Church in Blackpool. The priest's decision to hold the service was criticised. He defended his decision as he believed William Hughes was mentally ill, therefore not responsible for his actions. A basic funeral was paid for by the government, but this did not include costs of moving his body. The decision was made to bury him in Chesterfield at Boythorpe Cemetery. As his plot was dug, protesters filled it in again. They stood out in the heavy rain with placards saying, Holy ground, not for killers. The 
events of January 1977 could not have impacted anyone more than they did Jill Moran. She went to stay with friends in Matlock, Derbyshire. A doctor visited her and deemed her health to be satisfactory considering the circumstances. Understandably, she didn't attend the short inquest into the death of her family. Her father Arthur, mother Amy, husband Richard and daughter Sarah were all cremated on the same day at Chesterfield Crematorium. Jill showed remarkable strength. She fell in love and married Jim McQueen, her husband's cousin. In 1980, the couple had a daughter. But the marriage was not without its problems, as in 1988 Jim McQueen was sentenced to two years in prison for threatening a pub landlord with a shotgun. Thank you for listening and special thanks to our Patreon supporters. For more information, please visit theywalkamonguspodcast.com. For just $3 a month, you can support They Walk Among Us and receive ad-free access to episodes directly through the Apple Podcast app four days before they're available on our public feed. Just head to patreon.com forward slash theywalkamonguspodcast.com for more details. You can follow us on Twitter at TWAU underscore podcast or follow us on Instagram and Facebook under They Walk Among Us podcast. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.